This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Mark Friedman, spelled F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N, no relation to me, is the president and CEO of Encore.org. And he's one of the nation's leading experts on the longevity revolution. Under his leadership, Encore.org has helped spark a growing movement to tap the talent and experience of people past midlife as a human resource for solving our most vexing social problems. Mark is also a member of the Wall Street Journal's Experts Panel, and the author of several books, including Retiring with Confidence for the Genius and The Big Shift, Navigating the New Stage Beyond Midlife. Friedman co-founded with AARP Experience Corps to mobilize people over 50 to improve the school performance and prospects of low-income elementary school students in 22 U.S. cities. He also spearheaded the creation of the Encore Fellowships Program, a one-year internship for grown-ups, helping individuals translate their midlife skills into second acts focused on social impact, and the Purpose Prize, now run by AARP, which has an annual $100,000 prize for social entrepreneurs in the second half of life. In 2018, he received the Eisner Prize for Intergenerational Excellence, was named Social Entrepreneur of the Year by the World Economic Forum, and he was recognized as one of the nation's leading social entrepreneurs by Fast Company magazine three years in a row. In this episode, we talk about his latest book, How to Live Forever, The Enduring Power of Connecting the Generations. We explore how our society changed in the 20th century. At the outset, we were the most age-integrated, but at the end of the 20th century, we were the most age-segregated, and how this has had a negative impact on both the young and the old, our two loneliest groups in society. Friedman cites the Big Brothers and Big Sisters study that found that children need at least one adult who is, quote, irrationally crazy about them, quote, in order to thrive, and what this implies for why we must connect the old and the young. Friedman describes the many ways in which we as a society are not adapting quickly enough to the fact of longer lifespans that are leaving so many at midlife without meaningful ways to contribute their, uh, their accumulated skills, their wisdom. He describes Encore.org's innovative solutions to try to bring the generations together for the benefit of all. Really creative, really useful, and eminently practical. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would so much appreciate it if you would rate it and review it on iTunes so others are more likely to find and enjoy it too. 
takes 30 seconds, and it would really make a difference. So I hope you'll be able to do that. And now, without further ado, please get set to listen to and learn from one of the world's leading experts on the profound importance of intergenerational connections. It's Mark Friedman. Mark, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu. I, I, it's such an honor to be on the show. And uh, as I was saying to the producer beforehand, it's like meeting an old friend for the first time. I've been following your work and, and being enriched by it for so many years. And, and so thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. I feel the same. Uh, so tell us, give us just a brief capsule summary of the, the history of, of Encore. How did you discover this need uh, for those who want to make a living and uh, and make a difference in the second half of life working for the greater good and for the next generation yeah i went i went looking at the opposite end of the life spectrum i, mm-hmm. I spent the first 15 years of my working life focused on on trying to help kids who are growing up in poverty through creating new education programs social programs and um became increasingly convinced that the most important thing we could do is provide more social connections and support for for young people um, and mm-hmm. was involved in a study of the Big Brother Big Sister program, which had been around for almost a century mm-hmm. but never been studied. And we did research on kids in that program and discovered that kids who had a mentor um, were dramatically more likely to, to find their footing, 46% less likely to use drugs than kids without Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of support, um, uh, much less likely to be involved in violent behavior, to drop out of school. And so um, this this study of Big Brothers Big Sisters reaped all these wonderful um, results about the the kind of power of these connections, uh, but it raised a troubling question. At the Mm -hmm. time we did the study, there were 70,000 kids being served by a mentor, uh, but 30,000 waiting on a waiting list for a year and a half. And it raised the question of, you know, if this works so well, uh, where are the human beings to do the things that only people can do? And that... Um, that like like care for another you. human being, right? It, it, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Yuri Brofenbrenner, one of the great giants of child psychology and co-founder of the Head Start program, at the end of his life was asked, you know, what did he learn after... 50 plus years of research. And he said, what every child needs is at least one adult who's irrationally crazy about that. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, the question was, well, it doesn't, true, doesn't have to be the parent, people? right? It's exactly. not just, it could be anyone. It, exactly. And, um, oftentimes, um, uh, it could be multiple people to, to support them. And that, that really uh, got me interested in the, vast and growing older population. We're already hearing about the doubling of the over 60 group that the boomers were careening towards later life. And all the discretionary time in society seemed to be concentrated in this group. And so it raised a question of, you know, could we put two and two together uh, in a way where everybody benefited, bring, bring older people into the lives of young people in a way that provided those older people with a sense of purpose and at the same time um, provide 
um, more rationally crazy adults for for young people, and that was the origin of the Experience Core program you it's mentioned. It's such an like obvious idea, right? I mean, it's and I'm sure, and you write about this in in How to Live Forever, that this is a, a concept that has you know been true of most societies throughout history, but that in our modern society, it has been somehow. Um, distorted or disrupted, and part of what you're trying to do is to is to heal that. If I have it right, it, it, it's true, and and it's where human nature has been pointing. You know, I, I mentioned that study of you know about the power of relationships for kids. Well, it turns out that the great Harvard study of adult development, of which you know a great mm-hmm. deal, um, uh, one of the chief findings is not just that relationships were the key to happiness in adult life and later life uh, for individuals, but but particularly relationships that flow down the generational chain, that Mm -hmm. older people who were uh, mentor younger people were shown to be three times as likely to be happy as those who failed to do so. And George Valen, who ran that study for four decades, encapsulated it in a beautiful phrase. He says, biology flows downhill. Mm. And so if that's what makes us happy in later life, and that's what we need as young people, as you were saying, why, why doesn't it happen everywhere and, and uh, naturally? And, and the reason is, uh, as you were also suggesting, is that we thwarted it. <laughs> yes. And we thwarted it over the last century. We started the 20th century as the most age-integrated society in the world, and we completed the century as the most age-segregated. Age-integrated, meaning that the generations were living together in harmony. In in every aspect of, of life. And I, I'm really taken by the harmony theme of the show, because I, as I was listening to it, I realized that's, that's really about, uh, really what the book is about, is, a, is finding a kind of social harmony that's mm-hmm. trying to be realized, and that once was but doing it in a way that doesn't succumb to nostalgia. We're not going to go back to the 19th century, but the but finds new ways to do old things. Um, but as you, as you were saying, you know, in the 19th century, people don't realize this, but, you know, every aspect of, like, we lived in multi-generational households. Mm-hmm. Even schools, those, you know, one-room schoolhouses had people in their 30s and 40s. We worked on the farmstead, uh, older people, younger people, side by side. And chronological age was a completely foreign concept in society. Knowing what somebody's age was in 19th century America would have been an oddity. It would be like knowing hmm. somebody's blood type hmm. today. We just didn't, didn't matter. Birthdays. Hmm. The, the birthday song wasn't invented until 1934. So it was a very hmm. different world. And then very quickly, we reshuffled society so that age became uh, a real, uh, not just definer, but but divider. Mm. So there's a lot about Encore.org that I want our listeners to know about. And, and, and so if you could give us what the highlights of what you're now doing with Encore.org uh, are, what are, what are some of the, the key programs or, or initiatives that Encore is now uh, doing? Well, you know, you could describe what we're now doing as, as applied Bob Kahn. <laughs> you know, he, he, one of his most important books was Successful Aging, which he did with uh, Jack Rowe. Yes. And in it showed that so much of happiness and well-being in later life is not uh, determined by genes, but by lifestyle. And the keys uh, to return to that great Freud line or love and work, mm-hmm. close relationships and a sense of purpose, a reason mm-hmm. to get up in the morning. And Encore's work is really driven by 
creating more opportunities for for uh, people as they move into the latter decades of life to have connection, a sense of purpose, uh, to do work that is not only personally meaningful, but that means something beyond themselves and beyond the present that, that leaves a legacy. And one example of, of that work is uh, the Encore Fellows Program, which you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a program, essentially an internship for grown-ups, uh, for the listeners who saw the movie The Intern, which Robert De Niro plays an intern and mentors the young Anne Hathaway character. Uh, the Encore Fellows Program is a one-year, half-time, paid fellowship uh, for people mostly coming from the corporate sector to use their accumulated skills in ways that help nonprofits be more effective. Um, and that also serves as a springboard to an Encore career, a second act hmm. focused on the greater good. So it's not just about uh, providing one's time f- to help young people for free, is it? No, you know, many of these cases, uh, it, it's paid work. In the in the case of the Encore Fellows Program, mm-hmm. um, w- what often happens, just as was depicted in the intern movie, is that the Encore Fellows, who are 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, have had long uh, significant careers mentor the executive director of the nonprofit where they're working. They're they're oftentimes mm. the only other experienced person in the organization, but who's not a board member, who's not an employee, um, and so that's turned out to be one of the most powerful aspects of the program. Um, other people um, are are launching entirely second careers. Uh, um, oftentimes focused on improving the prospects of the next generation. Uh, In the book, I wrote about uh, a program that we are uh, in partnership now with uh, in the UK called Now Teach, which Mm -hmm. was created by uh, Lucy Kellaway, famous business journalist at the Financial Times. She's written scathingly about my work in the past, but please continue. Oh, oh, (laughs) (laughs) no, not so much scathingly as just British tongue in cheek, you know, anyway, well, well, she's great. Maybe she she uh, um, reached a point where she was tired of writing scathingly about things and decided (laughs) to be a more productive citizen. But she uh, she, (laughs) at the age of 58 wrote a column uh, two years ago in the Financial Times Uh uh, saying that that. she was going to follow in her daughter's footsteps. Her daughter had done the British equivalent of Teach for America. Uh, teach first, and she felt that there was an opportunity for many of her peers uh, in their 50s, 60s, 70s to to have another mm-hmm. act, uh, and that there was a desperate need for teachers. And so she uh, announced that she was going to be, become a math teacher, leave her cushy job at the Financial Times, mm-hmm. and then she did something that so many others have have failed to do, um, who've been role models in some ways, but they. She challenged her peers to quit their jobs and and to to join her, and the response was extraordinary. A thousand people Amazing. signed up for Now Teach. Uh, they originally had twenty slots, so there were fifty people for every slot, and they managed, they grew it to nearly fifty. So the demand, Mark, is huge, uh, especially as the the boomer population just gets you know, boomier and boomier. It's big, and there's a lot of us out there who are looking for something meaningful to do, other than well playing golf. Nothing wrong with golf, but... Well, you started out, uh, Stu, talking about JFK's wonderful quote from, I think it was 1963, is saying that we'd added years to life. Now, now it was time to add life to those years. And since JFK made that 
challenge, issued that challenge, we've added two months a year on average to the American lifespan. And we've been uh, investing even more money, um, by some estimates, $45 billion over the last decade in extending life further yet. Mm-hmm. But that question about what all these years are for, what's the purpose of longer lives, yes. um, what's the role of, of this vast and growing older population mm-hmm. is all the more important. And, and 2019, where we now sit, is the first year in American history where we have more people over 60 than un- under 18, more older people than younger ones. So this is not just some abstract future question. It's it's one of the big questions of, of the day. And, you know, in your in your books about retirement and second acts, you know, you you've you've described some of these phenomena here in How to Live Forever. It seems that the emphasis is even more so on uh, on on legacy and, and the quality of life in one's senior years, um, and and how life becomes meaningful, more meaningful, to the extent that one is engaged in what Erickson, the great uh, developmental psychologist, referred to as the work of our, you know, of the, the, the last phases of life, generativity. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems like such an obvious solution to so many of society's problems. Why are there not, you know, structures and, you know, institutions and cultural norms that have been like, why are you in business, Mark? Why, why is yeah, all this stuff yeah. already happening? <laughs> right. And if, if biology flows downhill, if the, you know, one of the great sources of happiness is through connecting with and investing in younger generations. Um, why doesn't society flow downhill? It's like we've been swimming right. upstream. And, and, you know, as you say about Eric, Erickson's, one of my favorite quotes from Erickson is that, uh, that you could a hallmark of success in later life could be encapsulated in the phrase, I am what survives of me. Hmm. And that's what we need as a society. You, you, you pretty much distilled everything I was going to try to say in your first couple of sentences. You talked about that great Stevenson quote but about the seeds that you plant. Well, there's mm-hmm. a Greek proverb that's been a real beacon for me that, that society grows great when older people plant trees under whose shade they shall never sit. Mm-hmm. Um, Knowing that we sat under, we sit under trees that were planted by previous generations, and we have that responsibility, and yet we've really lost that fundamental insight. And I, I think it, it started with this process of, of segregating the generations, you know, industrial efficiency, all those, mm-hmm. those Wharton types at the turn of the century who were going to make make the world more efficient, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. Through, through, turned educational institutions in exclusively into places for young people. Um, the workplace became age-segregated as, as mass retirement mm-hmm. uh, became the norm. And then we created all these institutions, senior centers, retirement communities, um, uh, nursing homes uh, for old people. And the Twains no longer met, and we lost the sense of the wholeness of life and the role the generations need to play with each other, and and I think that the the decisive um, and tragic turning point was on yeah. January first, nineteen sixty, when the first large scale retirement community in America, Sun City, was opened uh, in uh, in Arizona by Del Webb, a, a great leisure entrepreneur who coined the phrase "the golden years" mm. and found a way to connect 
this idea of a second youth with radical age segregation, communities where children were prohibited in part because they didn't want to pay school taxes, but just as Hmm. much because um, the absence of children um, meant that people didn't have to be reminded that they weren't actually young anymore. If everybody was old, then nobody was old. And, And that golden years ideal, which was in some ways understandable at a time in our society where older people were so rejected, mm-hmm. um, has not served us well. And I think now we're at a juncture where uh, people are talking about generational war, between kids versus canes, where loneliness among older people and younger people is more pronounced than any other group in society, and where we're facing a multi-generational population, but few opportunities for people to connect in ways that are mutually beneficial. And and that's where Encore and other such initiatives has had to arise, to emerge in order to solve a problem that we created uh, during our lifetimes, Mark. Um, this, this splitting of the generations, which is entirely unnatural. Uh, and and is and has caused all kinds of problems for both the young and the old. Uh, absolutely, but as you say, there are um, problem solvers working on all of these um, domains where we spend our daily lives and in, in the workplace, in yes. um, through programs like Encore Fellows being one example, mm-hmm. in. Um, in housing, where there's really a small renaissance going on now of uh, around multi generational housing and, and creative ways to um, to bring people into proximity. What specific advice would you have for someone listening who who wants to do something now? Uh, particularly, let's focus first on someone who's interested in, well, doing uh, some kind of encore activity that provides greater sense of meaning, uh, especially someone who is also still having to make money to care for, uh, you know, his shelter and food and maybe other family members, maybe, you know, still still caring for others um, financially. What what's, what's a good place to start or what advice do you give for people thinking about encore careers to get started? Well, what is just a... A reality check. Um, you know, the, the idea that 65 was a, the time where you were no longer useful um, uh, over the hill came from 1935. That was the eligibility age that was picked for Social Security. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became the definition of retirement age. And there's an economist at Stanford, uh, John Chauvin, who says, you know, we'd never use $1935 in 2019 without adjusting them for inflation, but we use this antiquated notion of being over the hill mm. uh, as if it was some eternal verity, and it's it's not. I, mm. And there's a, a, an op, and in many ways, um, and just in terms of thinking about this period, um, we're entering, those of us who are coming into our 60s are entering a period in life that in, in many ways is a, is a sweet spot in life where you have totally the benefit of all this experience, yes, and you're time not, to do something with it, and you're not dead yet. E- exactly, <laughs> but you know, I think at some level, the idea that uh, the road doesn't go on forever—you know—that we will be dead at some point c- provides extra motivation and impetus for thinking about how to how to use this time in the, in 
the the richest, most beneficial well, ways. And, and also, and you've, so reached point, is, uh, you've reached a point. You've reached a point of. Finish. Go ahead. Sorry. Stanley Hall, the father of market psychology. He, yes. He, he described this period as an Indian summer, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's it's a it's a beautiful notion and in a lot of ways it's a new stage of life akin to the creation of adolescence 100 years ago so we've got the time to do something really sig- significant um and i think it's no surprise in that context that so many people are launching second acts at the intersection of of passion purpose a paycheck we've called them encore careers they last about 10 years, there are 4.5 million Americans already in these encore careers in the second half of life. 21 million more say it's a top priority to, to do so. And, you know, when you put the 10 years and the 4.5 million and the 21 million together and you run the math, that's 250 million years of human and social capital that could be applied to solving some of the most significant problems of, of the day. And so there's a huge opportunity for us as individuals uh, to recognize that we have enough time here to do something that might be, not be as long as our midlife work, but that weighs as much, but also for society. Especially at a point in your development where you have uh, some sense of mastery over what you've been doing your whole life, and you're also less likely to give a shit about what other people think. And so you're freer to express your talents and your particular gifts in ways that can really be beneficial to others. So so you you were saying start with a reality check. Like what else do people need to do who were thinking, yeah, I got to figure out what to do with these next 20 years because I'm still, mm. you know, healthy and alive or not as healthy as I once was perhaps, but I got a lot to offer. Where do I go? How do I how do I pursue that in practical terms? Well, you know, I think this again returns to that question of time, you know, because it's not like we just have a you know a brief hiatus of a few years, but we could have you know a period that's twenty twenty five years in mm-hmm. duration. I think a lot of people should consider yeah. taking a break um, and hmm. and ha- essentially having a gap year for grownups. You know that that's what the Encore Fellowship Program Ooh. has become for a lot of people. It's a chance to. Um, to rest up, to explore new areas, and to uh, you know to begin moving in a new direction, but not feeling like we have to flail about. Um, and and partly it's been based on the research of of Herminia Ibarra, um, who wrote a wonderful book uh, Working Identity, and yes. showed that people who make career changes at all junctures, they, it, usually through rolling up their sleeves and trying on different options, and and so I think. I think we need to, as a society, create more opportunities to do that. Can, can you um, give us some examples of uh, gap years for grownups that uh, that uh, come to mind uh, that that might help people get a, a picture of what that might look like? Well, you know, a, a lot of people are are actually going to school mm-hmm. at this juncture, um, and there's been a, a doubling, for example, of people going to divinity school after the age <laughs> of of 50. Um, and I'm, I'm really heartened um, by the development of new, a whole set of new educational opportunities for people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, starting with the Advanced Leadership uh, Initiative at Harvard created by Rosa Beth Cantor, one of mm-hmm. the great management professors of the past 50 years. Absolutely. Who, one of my heroes. Who decide, 
Yes, yes. And, you know, who, who decided we needed a third stage of education? If we're going to live to 80, 90, 100, why should we load all of our education, you know, between 18 and 25, then work like maniacs for 30 or 40 years and then, you know, get go off to the sidelines and hit that golf ball that you mentioned earlier around? And, and so we, we need to redistribute leisure education work in, in new ways across you know, a new map of life. Um, and so so Harvard started the Advanced Leadership Initiative, a one-year mm-hmm. program in, initially for people who'd had successful midlife careers and who wanted to use their experience in ways that uh, uh, changed the world for, for the better. Stanford reproduced the program and yep. added some innovations through the Distinguished Careers Institute. Now mm-hmm. it's beginning to be democratized. The University of Minnesota has created a much less expensive version uh, called UMAC, and what what these programs are doing in the process is they're age integrating higher education. Mm-hmm. All these people coming in their sixties and seventies. Well, plus it's are, a great market for the universities to to capitalize on you know their assets and to and to to tap into a, a, a whole new population of people who will, who will come and be a part of their 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 systems and to 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 pay for the for the for the opportunity. It's right. There's a there's a business there. I, absolutely. They're creating new alums and and I uh I interviewed a woman at the University of Minnesota who was taking a course in the future of work uh and <laughs> at, and these older fellows from the UMAC program uh were in her class and she was wondering at the beginning, you know, why why are all these old people in my class? And then by the end she realized it's because they'd actually worked and they had, you know, some experience and, and yeah. it's just a beautiful thing to see this kind of education that's much more natural and creates a different vision of the life course. Uh, Mark, let's talk about the workplace and and what can be done at work in terms of uh, promoting, uh, let's call it age diversity uh, at work and and what we can be doing to value what workers bring in the later stages of life. Um, is Is this about policy change or is it really about a cultural or attitudinal change? What would it look like for us to have a more truly diverse uh, work, uh, you know, social environment where everyone's pitching in at different stages of life and that, you know, and where the older folks who have, you know, the gift of, of, of mentoring and caring for others like, like Gil Stott did for you at Swarthmore, you know, 40 years ago, you know, don't get put into some corner office gathering dust, but are really elevated for the contributions that they're making. Mm. Well, you know, I, when you asked that question, what, what would it look like? It, it would look like society, you know, because we're entering a point in society where all these years have been added and, and they haven't been tacked on at the end. They've been added in the middle, essentially. They're mm. healthy years of life. And so we're ending up with a society with four or five generations uh, coexisting. And why why should they all be shunted off into different institutions? Education for the young, you know, as we're saying, work for the middle, uh, uh, hitting that golf ball for the old, or or even worse, just being in an ante room to the great beyond. Um, hmm. And and I think um, I think we have to recognize, you know, not not um, uh, romanticize later life. God knows, you know, I'm 60 now, and I've got things that you know don't go quite as well as they used to. But but we now know uh, from experience, um, from 
from science, from research, that that a lot of things do get better with age. And for example, you know, I focus very much on what older people can do to nurture younger generations in the workplace and schools. What older people are this great uh, untapped asset for connection. You know, as we get older, there is a lot of research now that we are, are more oriented towards connection and relationship. Laura Carstensen at Stanford has done these studies where if you if you tell people that they only have uh, a, you know a, sh- a shorter time horizon left in mm-hmm. life, that they focus on connection and relationship. You know, if somebody tells you you have six months left to live, you don't go out and learn the oboe, right? <laughs> you know, you go out and connect with people that you care mm-hmm. about. And mm-hmm. older people, I think, intuit that they're you know they don't have forever, and so that sh- comes out in a in a focus on relationships. All these relationship skills. Empathy, emotional regulation, um, blossom in later life. So, so, we're so not how st- can those be capitalized on more uh, in in our workplaces? What can people do, either as employers or as employees? You know, well, I think one thing is to is to value this this mentoring role and this relationship role, and to realize that um, that those of us who are in later life have a lot to to offer through that role and actually you know writ large we were probably the best equipped people to do it you know it's it's ironic you know we oftentimes think about technology artificial intelligence is displacing older people but in fact as some of those uh technologies um end up um, uh, mechanizing and and mm. replacing other work done by humans. The the work that's left is this emotional work that older people are particularly good at. Yeah. So in fact, arguably the best at. So and let's so say you want think, to do that. Let's say you've been an engineer. You've you've led product uh, you know development groups. Let's say or or you've been a marketing manager or you've been a financial uh, you know. <clears throat> leader in your organization and you're approaching, you know, the time at which you would normally be, you know, leaving the organization, but you want to stick around because you want the social connections and you want to give back and you and you're good at and you care about wanting to help younger people find their way. How would how would you go about doing that? You know, I I I mean to find a a workplace that values that obviously is is a tricky thing to do. Right. You know, one thing you do is is you could start marketing yourself at yourself as a modern elder. Um, my friend Chip Conley, who who uh, ran the started ran the Joie de Vivre Hotel chain, um, retired from that in his mid fifties, and he he got recruited by the uh, founders of Airbnb to come and and essentially mentor them. And at the same time, he ended wow. up learning this whole new business and realized he was kind of an intern and a sage simultaneously <laughs> came hmm. up with this role of a modern elder and has written a wonderful new book called Wisdom at Work about that and developed a, a modern eldering academy uh, hmm. um, to help people play that role. But I think so, you we'll know, have it, to get him on the show. Absolutely. And uh um, and and I think you know some, I think we need to appreciate this modern elder role where it's not like we've got all the answers and there's so much that we can learn from younger people in the workplace. It's very much a mutual exchange, but there there is a need for um, for a kind of long view mm. and um, and sense of of wisdom that that so many of us develop and you can only be developed through time. 
on the other on the other hand, you know, someone who just called. Uh, we, we don't have time to to take her call, but I have a note from her about someone. Well, she she went back to work at fifty five. And she sees a problem with younger people being in charge and not really understanding the benefit of having someone with experience on their staff. Can you comment on that? Yeah, you know, it's 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 irony. It's it's almost like prejudice against ourselves because all those younger people are the ones who are going to live to a hundred and and you know soon sooner than they think be be in that juncture. But I I think that the the fact that so many younger generations don't appreciate the role of older people mm. as a result of segregation uh, between mm. the ages. You know, mm. if you don't, if you haven't grown up in, in an environment where there's a sense of a wholeness of life, you oftentimes don't appreciate that. On the other hand, we're now living arguably in a golden age of younger and older people appreciating each other. Just it's been a phenomenal increase in millennials um, living with their boomer parents or grandparents, the highest level since the 1940s. And, yep. you know, some people say, oh, that's just because of the downturn, but it has actually grown as the economy has has uh, rebounded. And so I, I think that there's there the raw material for um, uh, going beyond people living in more multi-generational households um, to coming to appreciate the multi-generational workplace. I've got one other question that I'm going to be asking everyone this year, uh, and and that is something uh, that I think is going to be important in this year, and it's accountability. So let me ask you this. How, if at all, do you consciously try to hold yourself accountable for living in accord with your core values through your work? You know, I, as I've as I've done this work, um, I, I realize that I've been much better – being mentored by older people hmm. than than embracing the mantle of mentor, and I've consciously tried to um, to work on that and try to extract the lessons I learned from all of the wonderful older people who took hmm. me under wing, so that I can uh, plant some trees under whose shade mm-hmm. I won't actually sit. That's beautiful and, and a, a fine note for us to close on. Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation tonight and to sharing your wisdom with our listeners. What, what's the best way for people to find out more about your wonderful book, How to Live Forever, uh, The Enduring Power of Connecting the Generations, and the other work that Encore.org is doing? They can go to uh, uh, Encore.org, www.encore.org, or uh, uh, www.howtoliveforever.org. If they go to howtoliveforever.com, they might learn how to literally try to live forever. If they go to the .org, they'll get the metaphorical counsel. And if you could, in just a sentence, boil it down to what your primary message is uh, through the work that you're doing with Encore.org, what would it be? Uh, that uh, more old than young society um, is every bit as much an, an opportunity to be seized uh, as individuals, as a, a nation, as a problem to be solved. Awesome. I'm, I'm so inspired by your work, Mark. And it's really a treat to get to talk to you directly. So thank you again for, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Stu. The feeling's mutual. It was a joy. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Friedman and that it provoked your thinking about how you approach the second half of life and how you can make 
meaningful connections between generations wherever you are now in your life. Mark's a big thinker. He's not narrowly focused on the dynamics of work and non-work in the present. He's looking at the big picture and the sweep of demographic changes, like the fact that we're living longer, and how these changes have had a deleterious impact on the young and old alike. This episode offers food for thought about how, for instance, initiatives that were meant to improve life, such as those implemented in the 1950s and thereafter, to improve work efficiency and life quality, have had the unintended consequences of radically segregating generations, adding to loneliness, alienation, and the loss of the great asset we have in older people to help meet the needs of younger people. So here's a challenge, an invitation for you. How can you connect younger people in your life, maybe it's your own children or grandchildren or neighbors or students in your area, to older people, maybe to you? If you're younger, why not think about the prospect of spending a bit of time volunteering with some agency or maybe an old age home where old people are, where you'd be there to help seniors. But what I suspect you'll find is that you learn something from these elders about yourself and about life. I would love to hear from you if you try any of these suggestions or move forward on any of the ideas that you heard during the course of this of this show. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and the way to contact me is simply friedman.wharton.upenn.edu, or you can find me on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to learn more about improving performance in all parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self of who you are, your mind, body, and spirit... Well, how do you create greater harmony among those different parts? You can find out more at totalleadership.org, where you can find free chapters from all my books and lots of free tools and tips. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.